Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19 says the following. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and heads that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. In traditional churches that preach expositional sermon series, it takes a lot to break a sermon series. Christmas and Easter sometimes break the preaching cycle. But beyond that, it takes an event of the magnitude of 9-11 to unexpectedly break a sermon series. Now, I don't mean break-break. I just mean pause. Like, put it on pause for a second. While churches all across the South are rejoicing at the reversal of the unconstitutional Roe versus Wade, here in New York City, nothing will change, other than a likely increase in abortions. Did you know that there are over a thousand abortions committed per week in New York City? And I haven't counted, but I'd venture to guess the vast majority of them are taking place down at Bleecker Street. I believe that this event of abortion, some 63 million unborn children killed in the womb in the last 50 years, this event with a death toll 20,000 times higher than 9-11, I believe that this is worth pausing our sermon series to address briefly today. Since January 22nd in 1973, there have been some 63 million abortions in the United States. That's almost 20% of the U.S. population that has been killed in the womb. That is as if you lined up everyone in the states of New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Virginia and killed them. These states combined to 63 million. 63 million babies killed in the last 50 years. Imagine if an entire country, such as the entire country of Italy, was annihilated. Or imagine if Tanzania was wiped off the planet, or South Africa, or France. That's the magnitude of what we're talking about. It's easy to overlook. It's easy to think, oh, that is an isolated problem. It's not my problem. I've never had an abortion. I don't even know anyone who's had an abortion. This is not something on my radar. This is not something I'm going to give attention to. It's easy to think that way. But this is the reason why I believe we need to address it, and I think today is is the best time to address it though it is highly unusual, which is why I've titled this an unusual message. This message is unusual for those reasons. I don't normally even address abortion during a month that's designated as Pro-Life Sunday. I, I rarely even talk about it at those times. But another reason this message is unusual is that it is Uh, going to be at least in part aimed at elected officials, not even at you guys. 
such as Governor Hochul or Mayor Adams. The last time I publicly rebuked the governor in a sermon, he resigned a few days later. Was that a coincidence? Maybe. Of course it wasn't a coincidence. There's not one maverick molecule in the universe. In days past, long time ago, preachers were expected to preach at the king's. They were expected to preach to the governing officials. They were expected to tell them what was what. And there was a very healthy tension there between the elected officials and the clergy. Sometimes it was healthy. Other times there was a lot of blood and gore as the pastors were hauled out and killed. But I feel like we've gotten too sophisticated to do that sort of thing in in our society here but I think that it is good to do on occasion. To speak to elected officials, even if they're not even here, there is a chance that someone somewhere who is an elected official might hear if you attempt to speak to them. So whether it's the governor or the mayor or senators or congressmen and women or city council members or others, We are facing a major problem, and we have had this major problem for 50 years now, and that is that our evangelical leaders are virtually utterly worthless on this issue. Pastors and leaders would rather preserve their sophisticated dignity and the approval of the culture by refusing to address or to call out the unjust taking of innocent human life. They would rather preserve their status quo of having the favor, being invited to the prayer breakfast or any of these events, rather than calling abortion murder. Please remember that our spiritual heroes did not see nations won to Christ by following a made-up commandment such as the 11th commandment. Our spiritual heroes did not become spiritual heroes because of following a made-up commandment that says, thou shalt be nice. A commandment that says, do not criticize anyone within the movement or outside the movement. As it has been noted that in order to keep the 11th commandment requires breaking the other 10. Our spiritual heroes did not walk in the power of God by keeping the 11th commandment that by definition requires forsaking the other 10. Our spiritual heroes did not see multitudes want to Christ by allowing fear of man and fear of culture to set the agenda in their individual lives and their ministries. I'll remind you that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. So even when I'm standing before you today in a room of friendly faces, where I know virtually everyone in the room, and I know virtually everyone in the room is very supportive of everything I'm saying, there is still a million little demons sitting on my shoulders saying, don't say that. What's that going to do to your YouTube account? (laughs) 
So, to any government officials, elected officials, or anyone who may hear this message today, I'm here to tell you something that you might have never heard before, but that is this. Abortion is murder. It is never medically necessary. Further, do not believe the lies, the propaganda that has been attached to this issue such as expanding the definition of abortion beyond what it is. Losing a baby to miscarriage is not an abortion. Having an ectopic pregnancy is not abortion. Over 90% of babies killed or murdered in the womb are killed out of convenience. They just don't want to have a baby right now. And they didn't think of that before they made the choice to get pregnant. You are aware that a woman can only get pregnant a few days per month, right? This is not something that can just happen. It's only even possible less than one week per month. Out of the 90% of babies that are murdered for convenience, the other 10% make up the rest of the stated reasons combined, such as, I don't have much money. Never mind that the city, New York City, is packed to the gills with free resources to help those in need. I've never seen a city that has so many resources to help the poor. That makes up, I think, some 7 or 8% of the rest of those babies killed in the womb. And then the actual bad situations, such as very poor health, life-threatening health, um, being forced to have the abortion by a trafficker or something like rape or incest makes up well under 1%. So do not be intimidated by liars who will tell you, oh, well, this is going to force all these women to have the babies of their rapists. Because the person who would say that, they're, they're not willing to say, okay, well, well, if that was the only case in which abortion was allowed, would you agree that it should be outlawed in every other instant? They don't agree with that because that's not what it's about. They want to use these, these left-wing talking points to push you back into silence. We are not called by God to abide by a standard of niceness. The Spirit of God calls us to love. And there is no love without truth. This first half of the message is admittedly all law. It is. So if you're taking notes, you can just write point one, law. Then write anything else that you want that's coming under this as law. This is bad news. This is judgment, doom, gloom, and condemnation. And I'm telling you right now that there is no love without confrontation, without saying, sorry, this is wrong. If there's a man or woman in this room today who is responsible for an abortion, I must bring the law of God to bear by telling you that abortion is murder. If you have been involved in this, you are guilty, and God calls you to repent. And until you acknowledge that first point, there is no space for for forgiveness, because you're not going to repent, you're not going to confess your sin, you're not even going to see it as wrong until you're confronted by this reality. 
The text which I read says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. The first is haughty eyes. The King James has a proud look. What the world calls a good thing, God calls an abomination. Pride is an abomination to God. On a day like today, where thousands of people will be marching in the streets, doing all sorts of horrific acts, God says that pride is an abomination, and he hates it. Even the look of pride, the, 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 the mindset and the eyes, the proud eyes, a, a look of pride, is something God hates. Secondly, a lying tongue. A lying tongue. This entire week, since the Supreme Court ruling came out, your social medias, or mine anyway, have been saturated with lies and straw men and false equivalences. Made up stories aren't even real about some poor woman that was going to have this thing unless she aborted her you know, six-month-old baby in the womb. You realize that there's an agenda at play. You can watch documentaries about this, that talk about this, that expose the reality that this entire movement has been built on lies from the get-go including terms like my body, my choice. Where they knew, they knew this is not the woman's body. This is a separate body. This is a separate human being that you're killing. But if we can build slogans that are repeatable and chantable, that sound nice to the uninformed, we can build a movement. God says lying tongues are an abomination to him. The third thing that God says is an abomination is hands that shed innocent blood. There never was a more innocent person. There never has been more innocent blood shed than the blood of the unborn child in the womb. Over 90% of which are killed for convenience. The fourth thing that God says is an abomination to him is a heart that devises wicked plans. There are people planning and plotting evil today. It's not a conspiracy theory, it's a fact. The hearts of men are wicked, and so they plot and plan wicked plans. God does not feel neutral about these things. The next one is feet that make haste to run to evil. God hates that. This section here of Proverbs is using the human body as a a metaphor, going from the top of the head to the bottom of the feet to say that mankind is given over to sin. From eyes to his tongue to his hands to his heart to his feet. This is who we are by nature. We are rebels against God. We are totally depraved. We are radically depraved. Every part of our being, from our head to our toes, it's all affected by sin. And so everything we do has corruption in it. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. We could always be a little bit worse or a lot worse. 
But this radical or pervasive depravity afflicts each of us, and we then afflict others because of this depravity. The sixth thing that God hates is a false witness who breathes out lies. God is taking it from the individual and the personal to a legal, judicial setting. God hates the false witness. It is a terrible shame that in this country you can be a false witness, you can make a false accusation, and you can commit perjury and get away completely free. This is a great injustice. In biblical times, the law of God, the standard of God, even natural law would teach you an eye for an eye. If you accuse someone falsely, the bad that you intended to fall upon them through the judicial system ought to fall on you. You falsely accuse someone of murder, you know they didn't do it, but you want to get them real bad. So you accuse them of doing the thing and then you stand before a judge or jury and say, yeah, they did it when they didn't. Justice would demand that you stand guilty of the thing that you falsely accuse them of. The seventh thing that God hates is one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord loves unity and he hates unrighteous division. God has spoken very clearly on this issue, this issue of the unborn, the life in the womb. Exodus 20.13 says, Thou shalt not kill. This means thou shalt not murder. Do not murder. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Do you think that that is only true of the prophet Jeremiah? Do you think that is only true of a biblical figure? No. The Lord has told us that he can count every hair on our head. He knows the fingerprints of the unborn child in the womb that that do, in fact, have fingerprints. Psalm 139 says, For I formed you in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is the law. And this is applied individually to each person. And rulers and government officials are not exempted from this. This is the standard that God will judge all people by. You can read in the minor prophets in the Old Testament. So you've got major prophets, the big ones like uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. And the minor prophets, they're not minor because they're less important. They're just smaller books of the Bible, so they're called minor prophets. And in these, the prophets' books, they call the nations to account, not for violating ceremonial laws, but for violating the moral law of God, for their brutality. Things that they know in their hearts and minds, they know in their consciences, they know by the light of nature these things are wrong. And the, judge, the, the prophets stand before the nations and preach that they must repent from their barbaric actions. And this applies to government officials today just as much as it has ever applied to anyone. A governor or mayor or city councilmen, women or senators or congresspeople, 
They all know that the unborn child in the womb is a human being and it is alive. They know that it is wrong to kill them, but they do it anyway. And they advocate. They not only do it, but they give approval to those who do it. Romans 1 calls this wickedness. God speaks to individuals, and this includes individual rulers. And then what do you call a group of individuals that come together to vote on things, to establish policies and establish governments? Well, these things apply just as well to governments, to elected officials, to policies. It is evil and wicked to establish wicked laws. And so these laws must be changed. Point number one, the law. Point number two, the gospel. The law is not the only message of the Bible. There is also the gospel. The first word is the law. The second word is the gospel. After you have been faced with the bluntness of the law of God, after you have encountered this hammer that crushes, then you are able or prepared to receive the good news of the gospel. And so what this looks like, practically speaking, is when I say, if you have had an abortion, you are guilty of murder, but then I tell you, Jesus died for murderers like you. Because he hung between two of them on the cross. They weren't just thieves. They were terrorists. They go around stabbing people for money. Remember some of God's most famous followers were also murderers. Think about it in reverse order, going from the Apostle Paul. He killed Christians. I think that's worse than the other guys I'm about to mention. He, he saw about, he, he oversaw the execution and murder of the early church. And God saw fit to, to have mercy on him. You also have David. David had Bathsheba's wife, Bathsheba's husband, killed. Murder for hire. Murder by decree. Murder by making certain orders in order that David's sin would be covered up. And then after that, you have Moses. And Moses also killed a man. Now think with me. Moses, David, and Paul. I don't think I have the number written here in front of me, but how many books of the Bible did those three guys write? A lot. What percentage of the Bible did they write? A lot. I'm telling you today, if you have committed murder, there is forgiveness available for you. In God's mercy... Your life is not over. The wages of sin is death, and you deserve death, but you have been given life. 
So call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. If you are a Christian today and you have done these horrific things in your past, God does not hold them over your head and say, you are guilty because the thing you have already confessed to me, but rather God does not remember your sins anymore. God has promised that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his transgressions from us. He's thrown our sins into the depths of the sea. And if you're not a Christian, that is available to you. It is offered to you. If you are a Christian, it has been given. It has been done. It has been completed. It has been finished. Christ died for murderers. Perhaps something about your past has kept you at distance from the church. Maybe somehow in God's mercy, he's brought you into the, into the attendance of the church, but you still want to keep the church at arm's length because you say, you know what, I've done these really bad things. Maybe you're a man, and you're like, yeah, I got someone pregnant, and then I told her she had to get an abortion, and then I paid for it and all these things. And, and so like, yeah, I, I need to go to church, and I want to be at church, but I don't think that I could ever actually join the church because of what I've done. I'm here to tell you that the gospel still stands available for you. The blood of Christ can cleanse you from all of your sins. And if you were to join this church, you wouldn't be the first murderer to ever be forgiven and be reconciled to God and to join the church. The gospel call, the response of the gospel is to repent and believe the good news that Christ died for sinners, and this includes those who are guilty of murder. Now, repent means to change your mind. A changed mind would naturally lead to a change in action. Confession means to agree with God, to say what God says about yourself and himself, your sin, his righteousness, You take God's side and say, I'm confessing this to God. I'm saying, God, I agree that that these sins are horrible and that Christ is a wonderful Savior. Believe or trust means to rest your confidence on Jesus to rest in him, to trust in him and to find full forgiveness to find the record of your sins which stood against you, they were contrary to you, to find that record blotted out, canceled completely. But not only canceled, but given the infinite righteousness of Christ. The the language and the imagery that the word of God uses is that of debt. And so you can think in terms of perhaps credit card debt. You have accumulated a massive debt The wages of your sin has been recorded and the wages that you have earned is the payment of death. So you've got this great pile of death that you have earned and Jesus died for that. But he not only died, he also lived. And so there is this transaction that occurs, a record transfer that occurs where he takes your sins and your judgment and your death and your sin and your condemnation. He takes that away and then he gives you his infinite righteousness. It is as if he gives you a credit card with an infinite limit of his perfection. 
Not for you to spend on sin, though that is the reality that when you sin, your sins are still completely atoned for. But his infinite righteousness has secured eternal life in heaven with the Father. This is the good news. This is the message of the gospel. This is freely available to all who will believe. You do not have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to join the church. You don't have to give money. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to um, take me out for dinner. You don't have to do anything. You just call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. It is available for free. This can take place. You can do this even in the last moments of your life. You don't have to have a certain number of good days afterwards in order to be saved. You don't have to have a certain number of good days beforehand in order to be saved. You don't have to clean yourself up in order to come to Christ. You can come to Christ just as you are. And that can happen today. You look upon Christ and you see him as an able savior. You see him as a sufficient savior. You see him as a willing savior who has his arms wide open. He calls out to you and says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. All those who are worn down and burdened by their sin, come to Christ and find your sins paid for. Find your debt removed and find your record secured forever in Jesus Christ. This gospel is free. It involves forgiveness of sins, a full and total pardon, and it also involves the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have you seen your sin and your desperation on your own? Have you seen your hopelessness apart from Christ? Have you seen your utter spiritual bankruptcy on your own? You who are guilty of these things, do you recognize the heinous nature of your actions? Have you read Matthew chapter 5 through 7 lately? Have you seen that in God's sight, those of you who have murder in your heart, you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder? And you see the wickedness of that. Has God brought you low before him? Have you seen your sin? Do you believe that the Savior Jesus Christ truly died for the ungodly, or do you believe that he just died as an example to help those who help themselves? Do you believe that he, he died as a sin-bearing substitute, or do you believe that he died as an example and we should follow him, and if we follow him good enough or well enough, if we follow him perfectly enough, then perhaps we can get to heaven someday, Maybe. You might not admit this, but what does your assurance tell you? What does your confidence tell you? What, is your, the, what do the voices inside your head tell you on your bad days? Uh, you're not really a Christian because you did that thing again that you promised God you'd never do again. It is so easy for us to drift into that sort of thinking. It is so easy for us to look down our noses on other people who are believing in Jesus Christ, but they have not attained the same level of spiritual maturity as you have. And so you judge them. You say, oh, well, they must not be a real Christian because 
they were, they'd come to church on time. If they were, they'd dress the way I want them to dress. If they were a real Christian, they would do the things that I want them to do. And so you, you, you take on this prideful attitude. You start doing the thing that Proverbs 6.16 says is an abomination in the sight of God. You have a proud look in your spirituality. If they were really a spiritual Zion, they would homeschool their kids just like I have. These things are everywhere. You can make any good thing into a law and then you judge other people based on their failure to achieve the, the made-up righteousness that you have achieved. Jesus died for the ungodly. Do you believe that he died for the really ungodly? Do you believe that Jesus died for his enemies? Do you believe that he died for the wicked? Does that fill your heart with compassion on them when you see them parading in the streets? Do you see them as sinners in need of mercy, as sinners who are eligible for salvation because the Bible says that Jesus died for the ungodly? Or do you write them off as beyond hope because, wow, they're just so bad? As I've mentioned, Moses, David, and Paul were all murderers. A third of the books of the Bible were penned by men who literally killed or had other men killed in unjust killings. Do you believe that God could forgive those who give approval to this slaughter of the innocent? Do you believe that God could forgive those who give approval to this slaughter of the innocent through approving of it through depraved and morally incoherent voting decisions? Do you believe that God could even forgive someone who votes for a Democrat? Sounds like a joke, but I'm serious. Romans 1 says that it is wicked in the sight of God to give approval to those who endorse sin. And these things are not complicated. These are not nuanced things. These are black and white, light of nature, law of God sort of things. Every human being on the planet sees and knows that murder is wrong and that God has made a plan and given humanity a plan for sexuality. And for whatever reason, in the last like five minutes, the evangelical church has decided that it's all the same thing regardless of which way you vote. The Bible says no. If you are still thinking that way, you must repent. Because giving approval to wickedness is wicked. Now, there will be no perfect candidate, but the Bible's quite clear that some sins are more heinous than others. And if the Bible's not clear enough on that, which it is, and it says there are degrees of punishment, there are degrees of hell, our confession of faith is helpful because it says there are degrees, that some sins are more heinous than others. This today is a most unusual message. 
God has said, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God has said that he created man in his image, male and female. He created him. Male and female, he created them. God has said that whoever sheds the blood of man by his blood, by man his blood shall be shed. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It has been good news this week to hear of the change of the Supreme Court, but it will have very little positive impact on us here in New York City as of right now. It is good to take a moment to rejoice. It is good to say, thank you, God. But after that time of rejoicing, we we get back to work. We put our hand back to the plow. Not in a meritorious way to earn our salvation or anything of that nature, but because we have received the grace of God, so we want to go out into this life living and walking lives of obedience and faithfulness, and each of us are going to have different lines of work to walk in, different ways in which to be involved, but sitting out is not one of them putting a bag over our heads and saying, this is not a problem or this is not something I need to think about. That is not an option. But, but rather, everyone can do something. You can talk to people wherever you go. You can talk to your friends. You can talk to your enemies. You can talk to your coworkers. You can talk to people and say, now, check out this cute picture of my pastor's baby. He was born in September. This baby was a baby even before it was born. What do you think about a policy here in New York that allows even a nine-month, 30, 40-week baby to be killed in the womb? What do you think of that? And talk to them about these things because their conscience is bearing witness that that's wrong. But a lot of people have never thought about it before. They've never thought seriously about these things before. And you can have these kinds of conversations with all sorts of people. Don't be a jerk about it. Be humble, be gentle. And you can have all sorts of ways of incorporating these sorts of things into the conversation. But as the conversation goes over days, weeks, months, and years, you you can build this understanding. I was reflecting on the the nature of um, the... Incrementalist movement versus the abolitionist movement in, in um, matters related to uh, limiting abortion. And I was thinking, like, yeah, I, I agree with the argument that abortion should be outlawed immediately. In principle, I agree with that argument. But then I'm thinking about how does God work with us? God sanctifies us gradually. Why does he do that? I'm not sure exactly, but it's clear that he does. The moment you're saved, you're not instantly glorified. So you've got justification as the instantaneous declaration of righteousness, where God looks upon you and says, you are as righteous as my son. Then there is sanctification. Sanctification is a progressive sanctification that is a gradual, over, over, um, overall it's up and to the right, but there's a lot of ups and downs along the way. Some of those downs are pretty far down. 
But then God gets us back. He, all of his sheep hear his voice. They follow him. He calls them back to himself when they stray. And so your down might be pretty far down, but then he's going to continue. He, he's going to call to you and draw you back to himself and continue this work of sanctification over the course of your life. And then eventually, at some point, you're going to die. You're going to stand before Christ. And there, you will be like him because you will see him as he is, First John tells us. So you will be glorified in that moment when you see him in fullness of his radiant glory. So from there, you, 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 let's say with our broken system here, that you're starting down here. You're actually starting much lower than this, but my arm's not that long. And then you go gradually up. And let's say you go, you go, you go, you make it like this far. And then you die and you stand before Christ and you're glorified. Well, when you're glorified, you are like Jesus. Sinless as Jesus. My arm can't go that high. You will be so transformed into his likeness that that adjustment, would, it would kill you in and of itself. So God works with us in these steps. If God showed us the fullness of our sin in absolute revelation when we are coming to Christ, I don't think we could cope with it mentally or emotionally. We would be so wrecked that we would not be able to get out of bed. So God gradually reveals himself to us more and more and gradually reveals our sinfulness to him more and more so that over the course of the Christian's life, when you've been a Christian for 50 years, you see your sin more clearly and more strongly and more significantly than you did the moment you first believed. And that's just the way God works in our lives. Now, when I said earlier at the beginning of the message that the evangelical church has been nearly worthless on these, these issues of the issue of abortion, I think about this just very um, bluntly, and that is um, Roe versus Wade would not have been reversed this week if not for a bunch of non-Christians, non-evangelicals. Like these Supreme Court people, a bunch of them are Catholic. So what do we do with that? Well, I think it's an indictment on the evangelical church. Carl Truman wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. I tweeted about this this week. The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, according to Carl Truman, is that evangelicals have no mind. There is no thought in the evangelical brain. My concern is beyond that, that the scandal of the evangelical spine is that evangelicals have no spine. That when you combine and you, you stack up the thought leaders of American Christianity, what do you have? Who are these people? Who are the best and brightest? Who's the one who has crowned the, the heir of evangelicals, uh, America's leading evangelical thought leader? It's the most chameleon-like evangelical politician that has ever walked the planet. His name is Al Mohler. So if you take the evangelical institutions, the colleges, the seminaries, the training centers for tomorrow's leaders, and you find that in all these places, they're, they're just going with the flow. They're following culture. 
The best opposition they can do to culture is to do a third way. Let's meet in the middle. The result is that we don't have American Christian, evangelical, reformed lawyers and judges and people that would actually be willing to stand and say, no, this is right, this is wrong. That's where we are. And God, in his sovereignty and in his providence and in his common grace, has brought some Roman Catholic judges that have more courage and have more backbone than the the entire leadership of the Gospel Coalition combined. Praise God for Jesus Christ, because if not, if we were being saved on the basis of our faithfulness, Oh, it'd be bad. But that doesn't mean that faithfulness doesn't matter. Let's not make wrong conclusions. Let's not make wrong or pietistic conclusions that say, okay, because of the gospel, I'm just going to head for the hills and be disengaged with anything and have no concern for the world that I'm living in. It looks to me as though we're, as a society, we're headed back in a conservative direction. It looks as though uh, 2020 pushed Americans to a breaking point and that they've said, okay, that's as far as we're going to go. We're actually going to head back because we don't like things up this far. So it looks to me as though there's going to be some kind of societal-wide um, head in a conservative direction. And then all the evangelicals who built the Marxist revolution of 2020 will now be accepted as conservative evangelicals all over again. And then it's just going to create a new cycle in another 10 or 20 years. The freeness of the gospel should compel us to faithfulness. The freeness of the forgiveness that we've been given in Christ should compel us to courage and to stand and to love our neighbor enough to tell them the truth, even if it's unpopular. There are many more things that could be said, but let's close with a word of prayer. Oh Lord God, I pray that you would help us as a people, help us as a church to look not for excuses to silence or complacency, but to look to the cross and see our sins atoned for by Jesus Christ, and then to be compelled to help others to see that same thing. And then, because of that, flowing from that, then desiring to do good works which include helping people walk back from the cliff, to walk back from the path of destruction and death. And to bring them to Christ. Not merely to see them fall under greater judgment and condemnation, but actually out of a desire to see them saved. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us steel in our spines, give us courage, give us backbones. That even when we are fearful, that we would not be afraid of those things that are frightening. For those of us who have tendencies to be more courageous or more argumentative, I pray that you would give us grace in our words. Give us wisdom in our words. Give us humility in our words, that we would not think highly of ourselves, that we would not think that that we are better than others. And Lord, I pray beyond these things that you would raise up a generation of Christians who would seek to be involved in politics. That they would run for office. That they would win. They would be elected. That our society would no longer be driving at 100 miles an hour to a brick wall or off a cliff. Lord, I pray for revival, for reformation, for renewal in this country. And I pray that it would start here in New York City, as you have done in the past, that there would be an awakening like the, the, the prayer revival of 1857. I pray that there would be a revival here in New York and that you would bring pastors to repentance, to humility, to confession, to agree with you about your word, to stop making deals with the devil, to stop compromising with the enemy. Lord, I thank you that you work with us where we are, that you're willing to bring us just as you are, just as we are, to salvation, and then to sanctify us gently, and sometimes not as gently. Thank you that you've promised never to leave us or forsake us, that you will be with us. I pray that you would help us now with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.